Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily, your regular dose of reason in a world with really very little of it. My name is Ian Dunt. I'm the editor of politics.co.uk and the author of How to Be a Liberal. And I'm joined today by Steve Rolls, fierce and hugely knowledgeable campaigner for drugs law reform, who acts as senior policy analyst for the Transform Drugs Policy Foundation and the author of How to Regulate Stimulants, a Practical Guide, which was released this week. Hello, Steve. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Hello. Hello, hello. Well, I'm going to obviously talk to you about drugs and drugs law reform. But first of all, I think we do have something to discuss, isn't it? Which I I think I gather that we we both went to the same school, didn't we? Uh, Did we? Of course, yes. Someone mentioned this to me on Twitter. I think uh, someone that you work with, Danny, mentioned this to me. So you went to the Pilgrim School in Winchester? No, I didn't. Oh, then we're going to go to the same school. You've got this completely wrong. I went to Cambridge School in Southampton. Right. And I also went there as well. Okay, now I understand. Did you also find it a crushing experience of relentless conformity or or was that just me? Uh, Yeah, no, I hated it. Good. Excellent. Excellent. I knew there was something I liked about you. That's good. (laughs) Right. So the war on drugs. How's that working out exactly? Fairly badly. Um, Mm. Yeah, we're we're about we're about sixty or seventy years in, and um, all the outcomes are manifestly disastrous. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a massive generational catastrophe. It's pretty remarkable. It's it's still going, but there, there are some cracks beginning to show. Can you just to give us a brief overview of this period? Because I think most people listening would have just been living with the war on drugs for so long that it, it, it's hard to remember there was any other way. But there was another way. I mean, this sort of it started really with, with Nixon, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, you can kind of trace it back to the beginning of last century. With There, there were some early controls on opium and cocaine and cannabis that go back before the kind of Nixon era. But yeah, the, the war on drugs, the sort of prohibition in its modern form, really you could trace back to 1961 and the UN Global Treaty on Drug Control, which basically enshrined pr- the whole prohibitionist criminal justice approach as a, a, a sort of global uh, policy paradigm, and it was adopted by countries around the world. And then it, the, the war on drugs phrase itself was kind of popularised by Nixon in the early 70s. And yeah, we, we, we're still doing it. I mean, even though, you know, a policy that was very specifically designed to prevent people using drugs and to eradicate production and supply of drugs has done the exact opposite of that. You know, drug markets have expanded every single year since then, and more and more people are taking drugs, and all the health and health problems associated with drugs have got worse and worse, and the sort of crime problems, the violence and corruption and instability across the world associated with the illegal drug market controlled by organised crime groups has also got disastrously worse. At the same time, we have been pouring more and more money into enforcing the drug laws. So it, it, it's a remarkable, stunning failure on pretty much every measure. And I think it, I think people are beginning to realise that. I think there is a growing consensus that the war on drugs has failed. I, th- I think there's general agreement on that. But the problem is, 
there's not so much agreement on what we should do instead. There's there's a small contingent of people who says we should fight, who say we should fight the war harder. The sort of Peter Hitchens school of thought. There's a school of thought which says we should sort of fight the war, but in a sort of gentler, nicer way. The kind of decriminalisation approach where we keep pushing back on supply side stuff and, and attack drug dealers and drug markets, but we're nice to people who use drugs. And then there's uh, the sort of transform our position, which is that we need to decriminalise users, but we also need to regulate the market. It's here whether we like it or not, and we have a choice whether we want to leave it in the hands of organised crime or take it back within the ambit of the state and, and try and responsibly regulate those markets to reduce the harms they can cause, both to the users and to uh, the wider community in terms of the harms created by the market itself. Is the UK kind of a bit behind on this i mean it certainly feels like you know i noticed new zealand just had a referendum on cannabis i mean obviously u.s states interchange if but it feels like here it's really very rarely part of the the mainstream conversation well i mean cannabis stuff is uh, the, the polling in, in on cannabis reform is actually shows a, a you know a narrow majority now in favor of, of legalization regulation in the uk um on, on wider regulation of other drugs no it's still sort of between 10 and 20 percent but we we are seeing movement i mean politically the the labor party seem to be seem to be shifting there's a labor party reform group that's coming out with some sensible thinking and 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 documents now there's kind of actually an interesting split within the tory party you've got the kind of social conservative sort of moral authoritarian sort of ian duncan smith and widdicombe types who were very anti drug law reform and are all about abstinence and zero tolerance and war on drugs and then you've got the kind of more libertarian sort of small state personal freedoms group within the Tories, like, you know, the Crispin Blunt people are perfectly happy to advocate for legalisation of all drugs and talk about, you know, taking poppers and gay sex in, in the House of Commons. So there's an odd split within the within the Conservatives. Um, but I think generally speaking, we are seeing movement. I mean, certainly in public debate, in, in sort of opinion formers, in the media, there is movement towards at least acknowledging the failure of the war on drugs and beginning to um, explore what alternatives the war on drugs might look like, which is exactly where Transform come in, because that's where the debate we're trying to promote and inform. What does it mean um, to end the war on drugs? And what, what, what does what comes after the war on drugs actually look like? Right. Um, so, I mean, the thing that drug law reform is usually sort of focus on is cannabis, right? Because it's much easier to make the case and you know, lots of people have experience of it. It's generally recognised to be quite a mild drug. Um, and it's usually considered sort of quite dangerous territory to start mentioning the idea of drug law reform when it comes to things like cocaine or MDMA, which is ecstasy. But your book is really grappling that with with both hands. And actually saying, no, this is this is how we would do it for these much stronger drugs. It, it was part of the motivation for that, a desire to move that conversation on. Yeah, I mean, it feels like the, the cannabis uh, reform movement have got, has got its own momentum. You know, can, cannabis legalisation regulation is happening all over the world. Like, as you mentioned, that there's the referendum in New Zealand. We haven't got the results of that yet, but hopefully that will pass. Cannabis is currently being legalised in, in Mexico, 12 states, I think it is, in the US, uh, the whole of Canada, Uruguay, and, and multiple other countries are, are, are looking at it. Luxembourg is set to be the first uh, EU country to, to legalise cannabis. So that has its own momentum. It has its own expertise. And now there's a, there's a growing body of evidence to support legalisation, how to do it properly, what works and what doesn't work. Coming, There's a sort of natural experiment because different people are approaching it in different ways. But the, the, the same arguments, the same pragmatic arguments, the same failures of the war on drugs and the same kind of rationale for having a legally regulated market 
obviously apply to other drugs, um, including drugs that are more dangerous than cannabis, which is which is most of them, because cannabis is relatively at least low risk compared to other drugs. And in, you, you can also make an argument, I think, that you know, the public health and criminal justice gains from moving towards regulation may actually be greater for other drugs because so many of the harms associated with drug use are to do with their prohibition. The fact you don't know what you're taking, the, the unknown uh, purity, uh, adulterants, um, lack of information uh, on packaging, lack of information from the vendors, the fact that it encourages, prohibition encourages the use of more risky products in more risky ways in more risky environments and regulation can kind of reverse that you can encourage people to use safer products in safer ways in safe in safer places so all the same arguments apply but but it is it is more counterintuitive it is harder for people to get their heads around if you sort of say should we want to legalize cocaine or regulate mdma people go yeah but those those are dangerous drugs why would you why would Mm. you legalize legalize them and of course, the reason, the reason is because they're here, because loads and loads of people are doing them anyway. Millions of people are using these drugs now. It's not about whether you approve of them or think they're safe. It's dealing with reality. And the reality is millions of people are using them. And, you know, we, we have a, uh, a responsibility to help keep those people safe and to, to, to follow the evidence to policies that deliver good outcomes, which the war on drugs clearly doesn't do. And regulation um, holds out the prospects of, of doing much more effectively. Is there a danger of frightening the horses with it? That part of the campaign on cannabis, I think, probably relies on its success on the fact of, oh, don't worry, we're just talking about the nice one that you did at university. We're not talking about all those scarier ones. And if the conversation shifts onto the scarier ones, those who might be on the fence might oppose cannabis sort of legalization on the basis that, you know, you'd be opening the door ajar and and the rest of us will come barreling through going, okay, now legalize all of them. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there is that sort of slippery slope argument that people make, but you, but given that the slippery slope is to somewhere that we want to go, I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely, <laughs> absolutely fine with that. It's my kind of slippery slope. But no, I mean, I think yes, it is quite challenging. People do get kind of spooked when you say you want to legalize and regulate. But if you actually look at what we're advocating, we, you know, we're not talking about making these things available in the way that alcohol and tobacco have been historically. We're not talking about branded products or you know, cocaine premiership football or, you know, ecstasy world snooker. We're talking about... I mean, I'm, I've got um, to say that all sounds pretty great to me. So I'm surprised you <laughs> turned that down. No, but we're, we're talking about, a, a, you know, really quite, you know, a quite strictly regulated um, market with unbranded products sold from pharmacy style retailers that would be operated under a state monopoly there would be no marketing or advertising we're talking about making these things functionally available in a way that meets demand but without all the kind of marketing and promotion and uh, nonsense we've seen with alcohol and tobacco historically that would you know encourage increased use i mean a, a lot of what we've based this on is actually looking at the sort of scholarship from alcohol and tobacco studies and trying to learn what went wrong there uh, and mitigate against those risks. So, you know, we really need to find market models that remove the commercial profit incentives to drive uh, increased use or to sort of initiate new users. Got you. Yeah. I mean, can you can you talk us through it? Um, I mean, the sort of the proposals that you outline. Who would be selling it? In what you know, in what way it would be sold, etc. Sure. So, I mean, the products themselves would be produced uh, like uh, other pharmaceutical products because they are pharmaceutical products. In fact, they're the same pharmaceutical products that are already produced. Uh, legally for medical uses. MDMA, cocaine, amphetamines are already produced 
uh, for medical uses, amphetamines in, in, in vast quantities. So the production side of it is, is just using established production methods. The products themselves would be sold very much like pharmaceutical medicines are at the moment. So it would be an unbranded packaging that would be clearly labelled with, with dosage and uh, risk and health information. You would buy them from a state monopoly operated pharmacy-like retailer where a trained professional would act as a gatekeeper to access. It would be adults only. Um, and the, the, the vendor, that pharmacist style vendor, wouldn't necessarily be an actual pharmacist. It could be a distinct professional niche. But they, they would, as well as um, actually retailing the products, they would be trained and required to give information on risk reduction, health, refer you to other services as, as necessary, as well as enforcing whatever uh, regulatory framework was in place, things like age controls or not selling to people who are intoxicated or any uh, rationing systems that were put in place. And that's basically it. I mean, it would be pharma-style unbranded products sold from state monopoly retail, pharmacy-style retailers. It's not that complicated. And, and, and you know, we already do this with, with a lot of products. You know, pharma- pharmacy model is very well established, way of maintaining safe access to potentially dangerous drugs. And that's it. We wouldn't have them available in clubs or, or, or pubs. You'd have to, if you wanted to use these drugs in other party environments, you'd have to buy them in advance. We see this interaction with a trained vendor as a really crucial moment to impart health and risk harm reduction uh, information to your target group, which is the people who are buying and using these drugs. So that's mm-hmm. that's basically the model. We also advocate for milder versions of drugs, things like coca leaf or coca tea or ephedra tea, some of the sort of milder versions of stimulants, which are more like coffee or, or, or Red Bull, which are also obviously legal stimulants, um, those would be available more freely through a kind of commercial market. And the very dangerous, the, 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 the more risky, the high risk preparations, things like smokable crack or methamphetamine, we wouldn't have those retailed under our model. But people who chose to use them still, um, they certainly wouldn't be criminalised um, and they would be managed through a kind of uh, harm reduction approach. So you'd have supervised consumption venues you provide wraparound services, things you know to address the the, the problems that the, the issues that were underlying potentially problematic use, and you might have a, a, you'd have an option for substitute prescribing, so that people could be prescribed substitute drugs in the same way that we prescribe people who inject heroin with uh, with with methadone or buprenorphine, for example. Why do you separate those uh, drugs like crack out? Is it just because it, just the the severity of the danger that they pose to sort of quality of life? Well, I think it's, it's, it seems reasonable that you have uh, different tiers of regulation related to the risks associated with a particular product. So we, we, we wouldn't advocate um, cocaine powder being in sa- sold in the same way as, as, as cannabis or chewable coca leaf. Um, and, and in the same way, if people are injecting or smoking stimulants, you know, that's dramatically more risky than taking an MDMA pill or amphetamine pill or snorting a line of coke. And we think it needs to be uh, responsibly managed in a different way. It's hard to see a kind of uh, how a retail model for crack cocaine or smoke mm-hmm. or methamphetamine c- could could really work. You know, if, if you if you got to that point where you're using smokable crack or smokable methamphetamine, um, it's probably best managed within a harm reduction framework. We're not advocating criminalization of those people, far from it. 
but um, we can't see how a sort of more conventional retail model would work for those, certainly in in the first instance. So we've deliberately gone for a more cautious, small C conservative approach. And if, if it, when it's shown to work, potentially it could be um, relaxed in certain ways. But what we don't want to do is have a sort of overly liberalised approach and then have to sort of retroactively tighten up because that's what happened with that's what's happened with tobacco market, for example. And, then, and you, you're by that point, you're then fighting against sort of entrenched commercial interest. And it, we really do want to keep commercial interests out of this market as much as possible. These aren't normal commodities. We're not talking about groceries or, you know peanut butter Um, these are potentially risky products and they do need to be um, more strictly regulated is there a split in the drug reform movement on those bases between sort of people who would you know everyone wants it you know uh, decriminalized um well bigger pardon legalized but is is there then a split between those who want the state to retain full control as the kind of model that you're talking about and those who would give the free market who would give private companies a larger role there is, a, there is an active debate. Um, there are some people who would have very few controls at all. Um, there are other people who would have uh, much much stricter controls. We, we don't want to be too prescriptive. I mean, we've laid out the options, laid out our reasoning and made our proposals and put it out there for discussion. Now, if people want to pick holes in that and debate it, as far as we're concerned, that's great. You know, that is where the debate needs to be. We need to be talking about how we regulate drugs rather than whether or not we should. And, you know, it's not going to be the same in every place either. This isn't, you know, what what works in the UK may not work in other countries. The the regulatory model has to respond to, you know, political, economic and and social, cultural factors in in different environments. So we've given a sort of broad brushstroke of what we think is the best approach, but we've also laid out a series of options where flexibility is possible. Great stuff. It's really fascinating stuff. Thank you. I have to ask you a last question, which is, as a Remainer, just just so I know, uh, what is it like exactly emotionally to sort of fight a never ending battle against a series of, you know, stridently ideological governments who refuse to base their policy proposals on evidence? Do, do you have any coping <laughs> mechanisms for that that you found useful? Or? Um, <laughs> uh, that's a very good question here. I, uh, I, I think you just have to have be very very patient and take your take your victories wh- where you find them. I mean, things are difficult in the UK with with drug policy, but we are see, beginning to see these incremental wins. I mean, we have seen drug testing at festivals um, has been introduced. We have seen a number of police authorities around the country have introduced uh, diversion schemes, which is effectively kind of decriminalisation of personal possession. The debate on supervised consumption for heroin injectors seems to be finally reaching its denouement. So there is is progress. You know, um, more and more people support reform. More and more people uh, are tired of the war on drugs. As as we've discussed, it's not polarised in the same way that, you know, debates like Brexit and some of the other sort of culture war issues have become. So I actually mm. remain optimistic, not least because we are seeing genuine reform around the world. I mean, you know, as we said, cannabis is being legalised across the Americas and, and increasingly in Europe and in places like New Zealand and Australia. And there is actually also a bill to legalise and regulate cocaine currently being debated in the Senate uh, of Colombia. And in fact, it's based on, on, on this book. So we've been working with policymakers around the world already uh, on beginning to put some of these ideas into practice so it's not complete fantasy um and i try to try to remain optimistic 
Good on you, man. That is your Bunker Daily. There's more Bunker every single day of the working week because, sweet Christ, why should any of us have a social life? Have a good weekend, everyone. Be kind to yourself. Cheerio. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunt. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.